We are right now in this year of our church's life, we have an all-in challenge. We're challenging our members to do four things, and one of those is to read the entire Bible. This week, in fact, tomorrow in our Bible reading, we have three new books that we're starting. Gospel of Mark, the letter of the first Corinthians, and the book of Joshua. So uh, I've written some a little one-page preview of each of those books. If you want to pick one of those up on your way out, it will kind of get you ready as you start to read those. If you haven't started or if you've fallen behind, start today. If you haven't even started the Bible reading yet, I know we're a quarter of the way through the year, but you know what? Reading three quarters of the Bible is better than reading none of it, and you will, you will be blessed as you do that. Also, don't forget, pick up a sheet uh, at, to, that helps you know how to pray for the lost, pray for all the lost people in your life, because that's the second challenge. Uh, find out a way you can engage in missions, whether a mission trip we're taking this year or something we do on an ongoing basis, and commit to generosity. Find a way to give more to God's kingdom this year than you ever have before. And We believe that's going to lead to some really exciting things in your life this year and in our lives as a church. So, who's ready for some good news? Anybody want some good news? Okay, you're going to get good news today. I promise you that is, that is my guarantee as long as you stay awake. Okay, we got a deal? So, uh, when I was a little boy, I went over to my Aunt Retta's house. My Aunt Loretta lived about a little more than an hour from us. She was my mom's only sister. Um, I loved going to Aunt Retta's house when I was a kid because at least up until I was about a teenager, my Aunt Retta didn't have any kids of her own. So, she loved to buy things for me and my little brother. She loved to have us over and take us places. It was, it was great. On this one particular trip, it was just me. I don't know why my brother was there, but wasn't there, but uh, she decided to take me to the movies. And the movie we went and saw was Superman 2. Now, this is, this is the, I, I guess, the late 70s, early 80s, so Christopher Reeve is playing Superman. Uh, the, the basic plot of the movie, for those of you who don't remember or were too young, and that's some of you, um, Superman in this movie decides he wants to renounce his powers and just be Clark Kent full-time. He wants to marry Lois Lane, have a normal life. So that's what he does. And one of the first things that happens after he makes this crucial decision is he and Lois are in a restaurant and kind of a diner place, and this guy starts harassing Lois, and Clark steps up and tries to defend her and ends up getting beaten like a rented mule. I mean, just gets pounded. And, and the, to make matters worse, I got sick right after that. I mean, I just started feeling bad. Retta took me home. I tossed my cookies. And... I mean, this is long before there's VCRs, there's long before, I mean, there's, believe it or not, there was a time in which if you didn't see a movie in the theaters, you had to wait until one of your three TV stations that existed at the time would decide to show it on the movie of the week or whatever. So I was literally an adult before I saw the end of Superman 2. And I got to tell you, as much as I hated being sick, and I hate being sick, especially that way, as much as I was upset about being sick, I was more upset about seeing Superman getting pounded by some just ordinary flannel-wearing thug. That just bothered me. It got all over me. We don't like to see our heroes lose. When, when our heroes lose, we feel like we've lost something. Some of you know that my basketball team lost on Friday night in the Sweet 16, and that means their season's over. Best season we've had in 35 years. And, and a lot of you have been like, hey, are you doing okay? I mean, no one died. It's all right. But at the same time, I mean, I stayed up till 11.30, and we took the lead with a minute left, and then we lost it. And yeah, I got to tell you, it was, it was a while before I could get to sleep. It's hard to lose. 
It's hard to see people that you've invested in lose. Now, think, you know, thinking about that, I want you to think about no one ever experienced that dynamic more powerfully than the people who followed Jesus. Because this wasn't a team they followed. This wasn't, this wasn't a superhero they loved. This was someone they'd given their lives to. And not only that, not only have they given their lives to Jesus, not only did they personally love Him, but in their minds, He was the solution to all their problems. They were poor. They were Jews, which meant they were oppressed in that part of the world in that time in history. And Jesus was the one who was going to make everything right. He was going to defeat their enemies. He was going to set things, balance the scales so that those who'd been in charge wouldn't be in charge anymore. And those who'd been on the bottom would be on top. Everything was going to be solved through Him. And then all of a sudden, they see Him nailed to a cross. And, And I know I said this last week. We're in this series right now about the cross and about what was accomplished at Calvary. I know I said this last week, but I want to keep saying it. None of us us here, in fact, nobody in the last 1,500, almost 2,000 years has ever seen an actual crucifixion. So we have no idea the sense of defeat, the sense of despair that that brought about. I mean, I know we still have capital punishment today, but there is no form of punishment, no form of death quite like crucifixion, not only in the fact that it, it rendered the person dead with beyond a shadow of a doubt, not only in, in that it, it wrung out every ounce of pain that it was humanly possible for that person to experience, but it absolutely degraded them. You know, Jesus, when He was hanging on the cross, quoted from Psalm 22, and the Psalms were the the hymn book of the Jews. And so every Jewish person hearing Jesus say those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every single one of them would have known the entire psalm, Psalm 22. They would have said it in their minds. And one of the words of Psalm 22, one of the lines in it says, I am a worm and not a man. Psalm 22, if you read it, go home and read it today, it it sounds like a point-by-point description of the crucifixion, even though crucifixion hadn't been invented when that was written. And the the psalmist is writing, and he knows. He says, I'm not even a man anymore. I'm not even human anymore. I've been degraded. I've been stripped of my dignity. And that's what crucifixion did. Now imagine your hero experiencing that, how that would make you feel. Now imagine you and I go back in a time machine and we approach the people standing there on that, on that hill called Golgotha, the people who worship Jesus and follow Jesus. If we went up to them and they're, they're standing there weeping, they're standing there devastated, their breath is gone, and we say, don't worry, because what's actually happened here is actually victory. They would have said, you don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. We've lost everything. And yet if you said that to them, you would be exactly right. So let me give you a scripture. We're going we're gonna to look at Colossians 2, 13 through 15, but first I want to read you Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So in the cross, Jesus was winning a victory. In what looked like the worst defeat ever, the ultimate defeat was actually the greatest victory that has ever been won in human history. So here's our text for today, Colossians 2, 13-15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. By the way, who's he talking to there? He's talking to us. 
We were dead in our trespasses in the uncircumcision of our flesh. He says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, if you have your Bible open, keep it open. We're going to refer back to that scripture. If you don't have a Bible open and you want to do that, go ahead. Now, question I want to propose, three questions basically. How was the cross a victory? Because it looks like anything but victory. And we think of Easter as victory. That's coming up in a few weeks. But the cross was victory, even before Jesus rose. How? Who was Jesus defeating? Who was his foe? Who was he overcoming? And finally, what difference does it make in the way we live? So let's talk about that first question first. Who was, or that second question, who was, who was defeated at the cross? Who was defeated at the cross? Now, I want to point out to you Revelation chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. Revelation 12 is a chapter that kind of describes what happened before this world began. And it's a backstory. It's a very crucial passage. It gives us some information we wouldn't otherwise have. You won't find this in any of the history books. And like a lot of Revelation, it's allegorical. And so stuff in the story refers to other things. It's, it's representative of higher reality. So in the story in Revelation 12, it, it talks about a dragon. And this dragon and his angels are fighting against God. And God wins the battle and casts the dragon and his angels down to earth. And the next scene you see is the dragon finds this woman who's about to give birth. And he tries to kill the child, but God protects the child. And so he's angry, so he goes after the woman. But God protects the woman. And that makes him even angrier. So here's how that chapter ends in verse 17 of of Revelation 12. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Again, like I said, this is representative of higher realities. Chapter 12 tells us that the dragon represents Satan. By the way, yes, I believe that Satan is real. Yes, I believe that when the Bible talks about the devil, talks about the enemy, talks about the prince of the power of this air and the prince of darkness, that all those are referring to an actual being. I believe that there are forces of evil that you and I can't see. Now, having said that, I don't worry about that stuff. I don't give a lot of thought to those things and for reasons that will become obvious in this message. But they are real. There really are unseen forces that are at play in our world, affecting the way we live, affecting the way this, the course of this earth, and, and they're at war with everything that is good. So, in the story, the dragon is the devil. In the story, the woman represents God's people, at that time Israel, and the children of those people, I, that child that is born is Jesus, obviously, but the, the offspring of the woman that we read about in verse 17, that's us. That's anyone who holds to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, what that, what that chapter is telling us is one of the reasons this world is so messed up. Yeah, it's messed up because of our sin, but ultimately it's messed up because there are unseen forces that are saying, along with the devil, I can't defeat God. I, I tried and I was beaten, so I'll do the next best thing. I'll hurt what's most important to him, and that is people. Nothing matters more to God than human beings, men, women, and children. And so he's going to hurt us as much as he can while he can. 
And that's why the world is the way it is. And, in fact, the Bible tells us we are before, you know, on our own, we are under the bondage of Satan. We are under the bondage of the forces of evil. And he has two weapons that he uses against us. He uses sin and he uses death. So let's talk about those real quickly. Sin. Sin is not just bad stuff that you and I do. Every one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us, we've all made mistakes, we've all done wrong things, we continue to do wrong things, and yet the Bible talks about sin. If you read it and you look closely, the Bible talks about sin in terms not just of bad stuff you do, bad choices you make, but in terms of an active force that is against us. Sin is a dominion, it is a power that holds us in bondage. Now, a lot of people would deny that. A lot of people would say, I'm not in bondage. I'm free. There's no chains on me. I can do whatever I want. And even a lot of Christians would say, yeah, I, I, I make my own choices. And yet, if you really think about it, you think about how addictive sin is, how hard it is to really say goodbye to sin, to overcome it. Have you ever struggled with a particular sin and tried to change and how hard that is? Let's just say for... for uh, for sake of argument, your particular sin is, is your temper. Now, I know nobody in here has a problem with their anger, but let's say, let's say hypothetically, hypothetically somebody in here, let's say you, that you have a problem, that you get angry too quickly, that when you get angry, you lose control, you say and do things that hurt others. And let's, decide, let's say you decide, I'm going to change. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to exercise self-control. I'm going to read books on, on anger management. I'm going to learn deep breathing exercises and meditation and yoga and whatever else. And let's say you get to the point where, yeah, you're at peace, right? Somebody provokes you, you just, hey, it's no big deal. Water off a duck's back. But then one day, one day, something provokes you. Your, your spouse says something that angers you, or somebody cuts you off in traffic, or your boss says something that, that gets on your nerves, and you lose it just like that. You thought you had overcome that sin. And now when you least expected it, you've just said something to your spouse that they'll never forget. You've just committed a crime on the roadway because somebody cut you off in traffic. You've just said something to your boss that means now you're looking for a new job. Sin is, is an addiction. It is, a, it is a bondage. It is a slavery. I'll give you another example. Let's say, let's say you start to feel guilty. You've been watching TV and you see one of those commercials for World Vision or uh, Salvation Army or Red Cross and you're thinking, you know, I'm just a self-centered person. I never do anything for anybody else. Well, I'm going to change that about me. I'm going to become more compassionate. I'm going to pick a cause. Who knows? It, it, can be, it can be homelessness or education or poverty or, or, or whatever, but I'm, I'm going to just devote some time and some money to helping others, and that's going to make me a better person. Now, let's say you do that, and over the course of several months, you've become more generous, you've become a volunteer, and you start to feel good about yourself. You get up in the mornings, you look in the mirror, and you think, I'm a good person. And then guess what happens? Then you start to realize, man, I don't like people who aren't compassionate. You know, when I, when I talk about this at work and nobody, nobody else volunteers to join me at that, at that barbecue we're having to, to feed the homeless or nobody joins me at, at that school we've adopted to help uh, train those kids, man, I, I hate those people for being that way. How can they be so uncompassionate? Do you see what's just happened? You've gone from being self-centered to self-righteous. And that's what happens because sin is a bondage, because sin entraps you. And that's where we are. And that's what Jesus had to save us from. 
So the devil uses our sin against us. He also uses death against us. You see, the devil knows. He's smarter than you and I. He knows that the death rate in the human race is, to this date, 100%. He knows that's something that we want to avoid thinking about. That's the big specter that, that hovers over each one of us and makes us worried and afraid. And, and everybody, everybody hates to think about the fact that someday my life is going to end. And my, my clock is ticking. This past week, I was at a, a, a leadership uh, meeting where a guy actually put on the wall, on a screen, if you live to be 90, there's a little checkbox for every week you're going to live. He said, look, look how limited your life is. And you're like, oh my goodness. That's how fast my life goes by. And that's if I live to 90. And so when you're young, the devil uses that against you and uses it to say, hey, man, you know, in a couple of years, you're going to be old like your parents. You better have fun now. And so you make terrible decisions. And as you get older, that, that urgency gets even more desperately felt. And so you start to become more and more selfish because, hey, my life is slipping away. I need to, do, I need to, I need to check off the boxes on my bucket list. The devil uses sin and death and fear of death to keep us in bondage. And so Jesus came to rescue us from that. He came on a mission of mercy, a mission of rescue. He invaded hostile territory. Every Christmas when we celebrate the baby in the manger, just understand, that was D-Day. That was Jesus landing on enemy soil. And you know what happened, right? As soon as the devil realized who that baby was, he did his best to kill him. You know the story. We don't talk about it at Christmas because no one wants to talk about death at Christmas. But the first thing that happened in Jesus' life, the first big event, was King Herod killed every boy, child, two years old and younger in the city of Bethlehem. And it was only because of the warning of an angel that Mary and Joseph were able to escape. And I'm sure what was going on was the devil thought, hey, for millennia, I have, I have struggled overcome by this God who I hate. Now he has chosen to place himself in the body of a baby. I'm going to kill him. But he couldn't. And so later on, we see Jesus after he's baptized, after this triumphant moment where John the Baptist dips him in the waters of the Jordan, this voice from heaven saying, this is my son who I love, and the Holy Spirit landing on him like a dove. After that victorious moment, the devil attacks again. Jesus is driven into the wilderness, the desert, where he spends 40 days with no food or water, and the enemy pounding on him, pounding on him day after day, moment after moment, with every single temptation in his whole diabolical toolbox because the devil's a better theologian than either you or me and he knows Jesus has come to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins and a sacrifice for sin has to be spotless and perfect and he knows if I can just get Jesus who has a, sin, who has a, who has a fleshly nature just like all the rest of us, if I can just get him to answer that fleshly nature one time, to commit one single sin, some, even something as minor as I'm going to use my own powers for my own good to feed myself, if I can just get him to sin one time, then the whole plan of redemption is, is done, is finished, and I've won, but it doesn't work. You want some more evidence that, that Jesus coming into the world is, is an invasion? When you read the Gospels, and we've just finished reading the book of Matthew, right? It's taken us three months to get through Matthew. You notice, how many times does Jesus run into someone who is demon-possessed? And you might be saying, you know, why don't we see demon-possessed people today? Or maybe you're like, hey, my ex was demon-possessed. But no, um, 
I don't know, missionaries and others will tell me sometimes, yeah, I've, I've seen cases of possession and it may be. The thing I want to point out to you is this is a phenomenon that doesn't happen in Scripture until Jesus shows up. There's no demon possession in the Old Testament. There's no, there's no people walking around uh, with, with these problems that are caused by uh, evil spirits inside them. That only starts when Jesus shows up. And why is that? You want to hear my theory? Well, I'm the preacher, so you're gonna. Um, so my theory is that the devil knew what Jesus was there to do, and he knew. I can't stop it. So he did the next best thing. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt as many people as possible, as best I know how, and maybe that will distract him. Maybe that will discourage him. Maybe that will stop him in some way. Except it was a terrible plan. It worked the opposite way. It, it went against the devil. It, 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 the tables were turned on him because when you read the Gospels, it, it's amazing to see every time Jesus encountered a person who was demon-possessed, two things happened. Number one, the demon immediately identified Jesus publicly. Nobody knew who Jesus was. Even his own disciples were still trying to figure it out. But the demons knew. They'd be like, oh no, you're the Holy One of God. Leave me alone. The demons were the best preachers of all. The second thing that happened was Jesus commanded the demon to leave this person alone and they obeyed and displayed his power perfectly. So the, the, the counter-invasion plan of the devil was futile and pathetic and useless. And then, and then came a Thursday night when one of Jesus' own disciples came and kissed him on the cheek and a mob arrested him and they carried him before the leaders of his own people who pronounced sentence upon him, who then dragged him in front of the Roman governor and manipulated him into condemning Jesus to death. You know, there was a 12-hour period there between Thursday night and Friday, three, 3 in the afternoon, when absolutely darkness reigned. It looked like the, the bad side had won, the enemy had won, and good had been defeated forever. But what we couldn't see happening was a victory was more amazing, more, more triumphant than anything, any army, any election, any, any, anything you can imagine. This was the greatest victory of all. So let me show you again in, in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, two things that were happening there at the cross that we couldn't see. First, he was forevermore canceling the debt that stands against us. Look at verse 14 again. Remember, verse 13 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under bondage. He held us there. And then verse 14 says there was a certificate. There was a, there was a list of our sins. There was a certificate of our indebtedness before, the, before God. These were all the reasons why we couldn't stand in God's presence. These were all the reasons why we weren't qualified to be part of His family. Just think. Imagine. Some bean counters followed you from birth until today and recorded every time you did, said, or thought something that wasn't right. Anytime you did the right thing with the wrong motive. Anytime you did something that was self-serving at someone else's expense. Anytime you were less than perfect. Imagine they put a little mark on their clipboard. How thick would that sheet be? How long would that scroll be? All the commands of Scripture, all hundreds and hundreds of commands, how many times have you and I failed to live up to them? Imagine all of that on a document. And verse 14 says, Jesus took that document 
and he nailed it to the cross. See, people standing on Golgotha, that hill where Jesus was crucified, they looked up, they saw above his head a sign that said, here is the king of the Jews. What they couldn't see was that document that was permanent. The listing of our indebtedness, mine and yours. And three days later, we know the end of the story, right? Three days later, Jesus rose. That document stayed buried. Nobody's ever seen it again. And if you ask God about it today, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. All I see is righteousness. And if that's not enough, it gets even better. Because verse 15 says, he was defeating our enemy forever. That's the second thing that was happening at the cross. He was ultimately, once and for all, defeating our enemy. Verse 15 describes powers and authorities. Now those are words I want you to know that when you see them in the New Testament... When it talks about powers, authorities, principalities, thrones, it's always talking about those unseen forces of evil, the demons that we uh, have talked about. And the fact is, at the cross, they were defeated. At the cross, their hold on us was broken. And in fact, Paul goes further. He says, Jesus put them to open shame. Isn't it ironic? See, that's what the Romans were trying to do to Jesus. They were trying to put him to open shame so people would look at him and go, there's no reason to ever worship him again. How'd that work out? Not too well for the Romans. But that's exactly what Jesus did to our enemies that day. He put them to open shame. And Paul uses a term there that would have been very familiar to people in the first century. It says, he triumphed over them. Now, that word triumph referred to something that everyone back then would have been familiar with. Because back then, whenever Rome won a big battle, not just any battle, but a battle against overwhelming odds or a battle that was decisive, a battle that everyone was worried about and it turned out well, whenever there was a huge victory for Rome, they would throw what they called a triumph. And the closest thing we can picture to a triumph is uh, the victory parade you throw for a Super Bowl champion or a World Series champion. And uh, this is what they did in, in Roman times. They would, they, would get, they would put together a lot of money so they could, they could just basically sponsor the biggest, uh, most elaborate party you can imagine to attract the masses. They had to have lots of food, lots of, lots of wine, lots of music, get people out of their homes, bring them to the city center so they could gather there on the streets and watch as the army came riding by in triumph. And there stood that victorious general in his gleaming chariot, and behind him marched the mighty legions. And then last of all would come the defeated enemy. Those who survived the battle would drag along behind, stripped of their armor, stripped of their weapons, bloodied, bruised, heads bowed. Imagine if you're a Roman citizen, these are the barbarian hordes you used to worry about. They used to inhabit your nightmares. Now they're walking before you, staggering around, beaten, and you'd think, I can't believe I was ever scared of these guys. They've been defeated. And that's what Jesus did for us at the cross. He said, you don't have to worry about demons and the devil anymore. They have no power over you except the power you choose to give them through your own fear." So don't be worried about them anymore. I have defeated them. So again, if you're a Christian and you're worried about, well, I need to cast the devil out of this rock. I need to cast the devil out of this car before I get in it and drive it. I need to cast the devil out of my house. Give me a break. You got Jesus. If Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is in your heart, the devil can't touch you. You are safe. He has been defeated. Do not lose uh, a second of sleep over him. 
I want you to think about this. When Jesus died, what were his last words? According to the Gospel of John, Jesus' last words were, it is finished. Which in Greek, which is the language John wrote in, is one word, to telestai. It's an interesting word. It doesn't just sound cool. It's a word that means paid in full. So in the ancient world, if you owed a debt and you managed to pay it off, you would receive a certificate that said paid in full across that certificate of indebtedness. And in fact, that word to telestai is in the perfect tense, which, let's face it, most of us have slept since the last time we took English class. It means paid in full forever, once and for all, done. Now, here's the really interesting part. Mark 15, 37, so, so it is finished, is recorded by the Apostle John. Mark, on the other hand, says that Jesus, just before he died, he uttered a loud cry. Mark doesn't tell us what that cry was. Guess what? Mark wasn't at the cross. He got his information from those who were. John, on the other hand, was the only one of the 12 we know was at the cross. So I believe, and this is my belief, I believe that Mark heard from someone else, oh, Jesus shouted something before he died. John was the one who was there. He knew what he shouted was, it is finished. Now, let me tell you why that's significant. People who, who know the human body, who've studied crucifixion, they will tell you that if you, when you died of crucifixion, usually what you died from was actually suffocation. See, the point of crucifixion was to prolong the agony as long as possible. And, and if you're hanging from your hands and feet or from your wrists and your ankles like that, and, and your body is slumped, uh, doctors will tell you, you can't breathe in that position. And so in order to breathe, you have to actually push up against the nails in your feet and, and pull against the nails in your wrists until your body is straightened up enough that you can take a breath. And so every breath is agony. And eventually you get tired of that effort, that pain, and you just quit breathing and you die. Jesus, in order to speak, he not only had to go through that agony, he had to straighten himself enough to take in a big enough breath to not just keep himself alive, but actually speak. It takes more breath to speak than to just exist. Gospels record seven different things Jesus spoke. Seven different times he went through the agony of taking in that breath, enough breath to speak. Those words must have been incredibly important to Jesus. And that last word, when he took in enough breath to actually shout it, to tell us die. It is finished. Think about how important that word was to Jesus, how much he wanted us to know. Think about the defiance in his voice. Think about how that is a cry of victory. Last words he speaks before he closes his eyes, he is saying, I have won. Some of you know this. You're, you're older than me. Many of you do not. 1965, Cassius Clay was fighting the heavyweight champion of the world, Sonny Liston. We know Cassius Clay better as... Muhammad Ali, and of course, Clay won. There's a famous picture. You see it there on the cover of Life magazine. Him standing over him saying, get up if you can. And that's the picture I think of when I read the word to Telestai. I think about Jesus on the cross saying to the devil, you've lost. I have won. Get up if you can. That's our victory. We have triumphed. The rest of Scripture bears me out. The, the, the rest of Scripture tells us, Romans 16.20 tells us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who's going to crush Satan? Well, God is, but through us. We will tread on the enemy. He has no power over us. 
The end of the devil is not a good one. Revelation tells us that in the end, he is cast into the lake of fire. And whether you believe that lake of fire is literal or not, it's not a good thing. He does not end well. God wins. The devil loses. He has already lost. So you might be saying to yourself, yeah, but Jeff, if that's true, why is the world so messed up? And all I can say is, um, look at history. In World War II, there was a period of time where Hitler knew he'd been defeated, where uh, the Allied troops had made it into Germany, and, and all, of his, all of his allies were gone, and, and the Russians and the Americans and the British were descending upon Berlin. And what did Hitler do before he took his own life? He told the German people, burn it all. Burn our country to the ground so they're left with nothing. Now, fortunately, the German people didn't obey him, but I think that's exactly what the devil is doing now. Every year that passes brings us one step closer to when Jesus comes back and claims this world as his. One year closer, one day closer to when the devil is cast out forever. And he's trying to burn this world down as best he can. Every year things get a little worse. He gets a little more desperate. But he knows who wins in the end. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean to live in victory. The cross meant to kill is our victory. We sang that song just a moment ago, but what does that mean practically about how we live? Two things. Number one, it means we look forward to the future. And that didn't used to be true. The future used to be a scary thing for human beings like you and me. All we knew was everybody we knew died someday, and so I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know. There could be a flood. There could be an epidemic. There could be a war. I don't know. I'm scared of the future. And yet now, with Jesus, I'm not. Oh, sure, there's going to be some bad things happen in my life between now and, and when I go home to be with Him or when Jesus comes back and makes this world right. The thing is, I know how the story ends. So ultimately, my future is brilliant. Ultimately, my future is fantastic. I want to I fast forward the tape to give a very dated reference. I want to I jump ahead to the end because I know what the end brings me. I know that my loved ones who've died in the Lord are not really dead and I get to see them again and our relationship is the way it should have been from the very beginning. I know, I know that as my body ages and things stop working, it's no big deal. Oh, it's inconvenient. It's annoying. It may cause me to cry a little bit, but that's okay because the stuff that doesn't work now is going to work better in the new body I receive when Christ returns. I know, I know that this world that's so messed up where every time I turn on the news, I, I want to just turn it off again because it depresses me. I know that all that stuff is really just labor pains, that this world is giving birth to a better world, a world where these kinds of things don't happen. And I know best of all, best of all, that this God I read about in Scripture and that I, I experience at a distance, that someday I'll know Him face to face. And these stories I've read about Jesus, I'll actually get to walk in His footsteps and, and, and embrace Him and hear His voice. And, and I'll get to know God personally the way He knows me now. And that means I'll get to experience beauty and love and joy like nothing I have ever experienced in my life. It'll put to shame the greatest mountaintop experience I've ever had in this life. I'll be having experiences like that every day for the rest of time. That's my future, and that's your future if you're in Christ Jesus. That's one thing it means to me to be walking in victory. It's that hope 
a hope that's replaced fear. Second thing it means is we don't settle for the way we are. See, one of the worst things you can ever say if you're a Christian is, hey, that's who I am, deal with it. We say that to our, to our spouse or to our significant other. We say that to our kids, to our boss, to our friends. If they get upset with us for something, we're like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, this is just who I am. No, you're not. That's not who you are. You are someone new in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. You are not a slave anymore to your sin. You are not stuck in anything. Because the power of Christ can enable you to overcome. It doesn't mean you can just walk out tomorrow and say, Okay, I'm not going to sin anymore. It doesn't work that way. But the good news is, if you're in Christ, you can look back five years ago and say, man, there were things I struggled with back then that I don't struggle with anymore. And you know what? Five years from now, if I'm still alive and Christ hadn't returned, I'm going to look back at me, myself today and think, boy, I'm so much better than I was then. I'm so much more like Jesus now than I was back then. And it's a constant experience of growth and transformation and excitement. You know, Ruth Bell Graham, who was uh, the wife of Billy Graham, uh, she requested that a certain thing be put on her tombstone. You go to North Carolina today, and you find Ruth Bell Graham's tombstone. You know what it says? And I quote, it says, end of construction. Thanks for your patience. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that's what's going on in your life if you're in Christ. He is constructing you into the image of His Son, into the image of Jesus. And that's a process that's continuing and continuing. Let me just close with this. In the book Les Miserables, not the play. By the way, I love the play. Honestly, I, I didn't really think I liked musicals until I saw Les Miserables. But in the book, there's this character that you see briefly in the play, but in the book, he's, he's really the focus of the first whole section, and his name is Bishop Muriel. He's a, he's a Catholic bishop. He's, he's a man of God. Victor Hugo, who wrote the book, ironically, was... Uh, like a lot of French Frenchmen of his era, very very anti-clergy, and and so ironically he created this uh, this character Bishop Muriel, who was like the ultimate perfect clergyman, just this perfect representative of Jesus. And in the story, the main character of the whole story is a guy named Jean Valjean, who is a French criminal. He's been in prison all of his life. He's recently been paroled, but he's broken parole. He knows if he's caught, he'll have to go back to jail the rest of his life. And he can't get a job. I mean, just like today, if you've got a felony, it's hard to get a job. It's hard to provide for yourself. And so here's this guy who no one will hire him. No one will help him because they know he's, uh, he, he's an ex-con. And so Bishop Muriel meets him and reaches out to him and, and invites him into his home and feeds him this delicious dinner. And he, he says, spend the night here. In fact, stay here as long as you want. Well, as Valjean is there in bed, he, he thinks about how the the priest has all this silver, all these silver articles that the church has given him. And he thinks, I'll just steal that and then I can fund the rest of my life. I can set myself up. So in the middle of the night, he gets up and he steals all the, all the bishop's silver. He puts it in a bag and he runs away, but he's caught. The police catch him in the middle of the night. They see the silver. They recognize where it's from and they bring him back to the bishop's house. They wake up the bishop. He stands there and they say, Father, we caught this man with your silver. This is yours, right? And here's what the priest does. He says, well, yeah, it's mine, but I gave it to him as a gift. 
And then he looks at Valjean and he says, brother, you forgot the candlesticks. Wait, let me go get them. And he goes and he finds some silver candlesticks and he gives them to Valjean. And he says, and this is the line in the book, after the police have left, he says, forget not, never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. If you know the story, you know he's a, he's a new man from that point on. That's, that moment is his salvation. And What a perfect picture. I don't know if Victor Hugo was a Christian, but he obviously knew the gospel because that's a perfect picture of what Christ has done for us at the cross. We belonged to sin and death. We belonged to the forces of evil. We didn't want to be there, but that's where we were. Like like Jean Valjean, we couldn't help ourselves. We were in that bondage. We wanted to do right, and the world wouldn't let us. And Jesus came along, and He bought us. Not with silver, but with His own blood, with His own life. He said, I have bought you from evil, and I've given you to God. Now you're mine, and the choice is up to us. Do we follow that? Do we receive that victory? See, to Jesus, that's the greatest victory ever won. It was worth every drop of his blood, every ounce of his pain, every moment. Are you walking in that victory?